First of all, we started this series last week. If you did not get one of those, we passed out a bunch of Colossians journals, which is basically, uh, somebody has it, just kind of raise your hand for a second, raise, raise the deal. Okay, you got to, it's just basically kind of a uh, journal that has the text on one side and a place for you to take notes on the other side. We ran out last week, all right, and so we've got another limit, we got another order in, limited supply, you can get them at guest services. Uh, they're free today, after today, I think they'll all be gone. And then uh, you can go online and buy them yourself. But for right now, if you want to uh, get them a guest services after this service, there should be some there. And then secondly, if you are a parent of uh, a child anywhere from three years old till sixth grade in about two or three weeks here at this campus, there'll be what's called Adventure Week, which uh, is the artist formerly known as uh, Vacation Bible School. Phenomenal week going on. It's absolutely free. Again, three years old is sixth grade. You can find out information on that uh, as well in the guest services. So here we go. Go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to Colossians 1, whether it be a you know, fake Bible on a tablet or whether it be a real Bible, whatever that wants you. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be a start. We're only going to go through six verses today, but they are, uh, man, they're all of them. It's just every word is super, super important. But just in case you weren't here last week, here's basically what this is. This is a letter uh, by the Apostle Paul written to a church that he did not plant. He actually raised up the man named Epaphras who planted the church, heard the gospel, then went back home, planted the church, and the church was doing great. All right, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul back to this church after Epaphras said, hey, the church is doing great, it's growing, it's going, it's doing some great stuff, but the culture is starting to squeeze in on its understanding of Jesus. They were kind of nipping here and tucking here and doing this over here and shrinking the gospel. And so what happened is, is he writes this letter there's 95 verses. It's not that big. There's 95 verses. There's uh, four chapters. And he writes this letter, and we called it Exalted Overall. The reason it's called Exalted Overall, as you'll see today, is that is the theme. That is the whole theme of the book. It's the idea that the culture, the Roman culture, basically had this idea. It's like you can have any gods you want to. You can pick from a panoply, a smorgasbord of gods. You can take it. You can take a little bit of this God over here, a little bit of that God over here, and a little bit of this God over here. You can pick the kind of God you want by taking it over here, there. It's like a salad bar. Take what you want, leave what you don't want, and then you can make a God of your own choosing. It's kind of like you can make a God in your own image. And so this was starting to make its way into the church, and he wrote a letter of correction. All right. It wasn't totally in the church, but it was dangerously close to shrinking their understanding of Jesus. Now, when we go through these six uh, verses, understand this is not just a letter to a church in modern day Turkey 2000 years ago. This very, very much, very much is to the American church, very much to our church as well. Don't think that just because this was 2000 years ago, when you open it up and read it, it is just like today's headlines. And what he's saying is, as your culture squeezes in and wants to diminish the view of Jesus, don't let that happen. And so what he does, particularly today, today's is sort of the text that all the rest of the text revolves around. And so we're just calling this, we're calling today, we're just calling it big Jesus. All right. Big Jesus. Here's the way we, here's the way this whole idea of shrinking God comes out today. It comes out today when we say things like, uh, the way I see God is, and then you fill in your favorite characteristic. Or you say, I don't think a God would really have a problem with, and then you fill in your, whatever your pet sin is. Or you're like, I prefer to think, I prefer to think of God as, uh, as this, I, which first of all, what is, what does that even mean? I mean, you know, Jimmy Crackhorn and I don't care what we think. I mean, it's like, I think I want to think of God as the God's up there. It's like, it doesn't matter what you think. It matters the way I've told you, this is what I'm like. And so what the, and, and by the way, and this don't take this as being, 
I hesitated on using this, and then I realized, you know, I'd mentioned it one time before, so hey, let me mention it one more time. But if the, one of the best mockeries of this whole idea, of I like to think of God like this, is actually in that tremendously deep theological movie, Talladega Nights, where Will Ferrell and that other guy, they actually pray. Uh, listen, let me say, I'm not, a, I'm not advocating the movie, all right? Don't write me an email and say, I, you told me to watch the movie. I'm not telling you to watch the movie. It's got some raunch in it for sure. I'm just saying there's a scene in there that's like, that is us. That's the American church right there. And what it is is Will Ferrell and this other guy, they're, they're talking about, quote, how I like to see Jesus. And so Will Ferrell's like, I like Christmas baby Jesus best. That's who I pray to. I pray to little eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. He's all snugly there in your diapers and in your crib. And, and yet at the same time, he's omnipotent. And then the other guy goes, I like to picture Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says, I want to be formal, but it also says I'm here to party. And because I like to party, and so I like my Jesus to party too. And then one of the sons, one of the sons, one of the sons says, I picture Jesus as a ninja, okay? He's fighting off all the evil samurai. Now let's just kind of, let's be clear. Even Hollywood seems to recognize that picking out one angle on Jesus and saying, this is how I like to see him is somewhat ridiculous. And I would say that when Will Ferrell is mocking the church, when Will Ferrell is mocking our theology of Jesus, we've definitely gone over a cliff. And so what the apostle Paul says is this, okay, you got all these ideas, you're trying to diminish Jesus. Let me tell you who this God of the Bible actually is. I'm going to tell you on the front end, these six verses, you're like six verses. That's all we're going to go over. These six verses again are packed. And the reason we need to understand it is most Americans want a God who is only a slightly bigger, slightly smaller, uh, slightly stronger, slightly smarter version of us. And loved ones, the truth of it is that's not the Jesus that we encounter in the Bible. That's not him. I would even go so far as to kind of repeat, I'll mention that uh, uh, a guy a long time ago named Augustine, he said this, he said, basically all of our spiritual maladies, whether that be insecurity, whether that be jealousy, whether that be covetousness, whether that be anger, whether that be whatever, all of those find their root cause in a deficient view of who God is. And uh, here's what we're doing. And uh, we've diminished God so much. A friend of mine once said, in making God our buddy, that is nice. We find that nice for cuddling, but it is not much help when the hurricane comes. All right, so here's what we're going to do. This is, this is going to be about, okay, who is this Jesus in the Bible? Who is this Jesus in the Bible? So we're going to go line by line. If you're new here, that's what we do. We do what's called Bible teaching. We take a line, we talk about it, another line, we talk about it. And this text actually touches on some of the big questions everybody has. Who am I? What am I worth? What is my purpose? What is my value? And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the text. Then we're going to kind of do something that we actually got to kind of mentally engage for about 10 minutes on the front end. And that's going to have to do with what we have to know. We got to know some stuff. But then the back end of it, before we go into the Lord's Supper, there's some things that I've got to choose today. I've got to choose. There's going to be some implications from the text that I've got to make a choice of as I sit in church today. So here are the six verses. And um, we'll talk about them a little bit and then go into up, try to hang two main points for some scaffolding today. Colossians 1.15 says this, he, talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Some of you have a public platform and if we were to Google your name, we would be able to look at a picture of you, an image of you. And so we're like, hey, that's what she looks like. That's what he looks like. That's the word here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
Now we're gonna come back to that. Many occult have taken that verse and built a whole theology around it about a deficient view of Jesus. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. This, by the way, is probably a little bit of a jab at both Caesar and Rome because Caesar said, I'm God, I'm the demigod, and Rome is who controls everything. And so Paul's kind of being a little uh, undercutting here. He says, you know what? That's not, Rome's not in control, Caesar's not in control, but by him all things were created. In heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authority, all things were created through him. And I wanted to highlight that word for. We're gonna come back to this. The word for means unto. It means everything, everything you want to think about. Pain, your partner, your pocketbook, whatever. Everything eventually finds its completion when it is understood. It finds its completion in him. That's what he's saying. He'll say it a few different ways too. Verse 17. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything, and here's the purpose, here's what we have to choose today. He's like, here's this big God and what's the purpose? So practically speaking in our life, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Two more verses. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, last verse, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of God of his cross. And so here's where we are. Uh, the God of the Bible is anything but small and manageable. I understand, especially for those of you and I that are kind of control freaks and whatever that is on your personality score, it's like, I like to control all this stuff. And the older you get to realize you have less and less control. All right. You don't have control over all those things. And the God of the Bible is not manageable. He is not small. He will not be put in a box where you can just kind of do the lever and then pop goes the wheel. That's not what he is at all. That's not the God of the Bible. He is big. He's bigger than big. He's bigger than all the words we can use. So I didn't know what words to use. So here's what I came up with, all right? Thought about it all week. No, Jesus is bigger. Bigger than what? I don't know. Just bigger than anything, okay? No, that Jesus is bigger. He's bigger than what? He's bigger than... He's bigger than your pain that you're going through right now. He's bigger than your issues that you're trying to deal with. He's bigger than your addictions. He's bigger than your past. He's bigger than all that stuff. You're like, well, you got to show that to me in the Bible. Well, let me just go line by line. Let's take a few of these lines. First of all, it says he is the image of the invisible God. He's the image where we get our word icon from. It's the idea of revelation. It's the idea of pulling the covers off a sheet to say, that's what you are like, all right? It's the idea of we don't know what God looks like. Why? Because he's invisible. Some people are like, I wonder what God's like. I wonder what God's like. What this text and many others are saying, you don't have to wonder. You don't have to question. You don't have to speculate. I wonder what God's like. I wonder what God's tone is like. I wonder what God's feeling like today. I wonder what God thinks about my sin. I wonder what God can do in the circumstances of my life. I wonder what he thinks about me. I wonder what kind of God he, you don't have to think there and speculate. You have to just look and see, okay, what did Jesus do when we saw him? Because it says he is, the, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, real quick theology here. Listen carefully, put your thinking caps on. We're not gonna dive deep in there, but there is a, there is a theology in the Bible called Trinitarian theology, Okay. If you try to explain it, you might lose your mind. If you try to explain it away, you might lose your soul. The purpose is this. The Bible clearly teaches what is known as the Trinity or Trinitarian theology. God is Trinity, which means he has existed eternally in three persons. 
He is not three gods. That's called polytheism. He is not one God who puts on different hats. That's called modalism. That's a heresy. That's not in the Bible. He's not one God that is subdivided. That's called, that's called partialism, all right? That's why every, could you put that in an image? Could you put that in a way, an analogy I can understand? Uh, no, I can't. I cannot. There's no analogy you can grab, and every analogy you grab to try to explain it, it just breaks down the further you take it. Now, I've heard a bunch down through the years. You know, I've heard it's like, God is like, God is like water. He's water in one form, and he is uh, vapor in another form, and he's ice in another form. No, you know, that's heresy in every form, all right? That's not what God is like. Just understand, God is Trinity. He's coexisted eternally in three different persons. You're like, uh, what does that mean for me? Here's what that means for me. Paul is driving home that Jesus is not the junior executive of the Godhead, that Jesus Christ is deity. That was one of the big deals that the church was pushing back on, which by the way, that's nothing new. That's why you hear movie, you know, movies or books like the Da Vinci Code. What's the whole attack? The whole attack is they didn't really believe that Jesus was God until later, which is ridiculous. Right here in Colossians, look at how many times he tries to say, listen, this is the God, the God who spoke the universe into being. Matter of fact, it's really important that you understand this because what you think about God, uh, A.W. Tozer, great theologian from Chicago in years past, he said, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you and will eventually dictate your behavior and your purposes and your values. Let me say it again. What you think about when you think about God I mean, some of you have different venues of God. You're like, oh, well, God's this and God's that and God's angry and God's love and God's... You, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you because eventually what it will draw on is it will determine your beliefs. It will determine your, what you pursue, how you pursue it, what your values are. And again, the, the real God of the Bible is not a God who simply completes us and makes you feel all emotional during worship. That's not who he is. He's a God who will humble us and who will change us from the inside out. And so let's take a few of those things. What is God like? Well, if God, the invisible God, is like the visible God, Jesus, what was Jesus like? Let me just take three. First one is uh, you can confidently say God is merciful. Right? Not only does the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament say God is merciful, okay, but Jesus shows what it's like to extend mercy to those that didn't deserve mercy. You know, it's easy to say I'm merciful. I remember the movie Gladiators, that, you know, whatever, Joaquin Phoenix, I mean, he was the emperor. And, and it was one time he was like anything but merciful. He's like, I'm not merciful. And she's like, oh, yeah, you're merciful. It's like, you're not merciful no matter how often you repeat it. But God is merciful because God shows mercy. One classic example is John 8, the classic story of the woman caught in adultery and the religious people, they throw her out there and then he eventually walks through this and he writes down in the sand. We don't know exactly what he writes. And then he's like, he who's without sin cast the first stone. All right. And then you remember what he says to the lady? He says, does nobody condemn you? Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. What a great balance of both amazing controversial compassion and yet calling sin, sin. Church, by the way, that's what we're aiming for, okay? Amazing controversial compassion. Showing compassion to other people are like, you're compromising. No, we're showing compassion without any disregard for the truth of God's word. You're like, how has that happened? I don't know. I'm still learning, okay? I think we're all in kind of that learning mode. How do I do that? It's like, how do you be like Jesus? Well, right there, it showed amazing mercy. We see Jesus extend mercy over and over again, and so we know that God is merciful. God is compassionate. God is compassionate. How do you know God is compassionate? Well, the Bible says it repeatedly. 
Right? Now, does the Bible say repeatedly? Jesus modeled it repeatedly. I mean, how do you know God is compassionate? And that's a big deal because some of you are going through a really difficult time right now. Some of you have a lot of pain. I mean, I don't know what you got in this room. Like, let's say we got 1,500 people in this room. I would say that if, if there's 1,500 people, I bet you then we've got about 300 at least that are going through some pretty intense pain right now. It might be emotional pain over something that happened. It might be relational pain that something is just disintegrated. It might be financial pain because you know what? It's like, man, man, I just tell you what, I don't know if how it's going to make ends meet. It might be physical pain. I wish you, I wish you could just know a little bit of the story of the young lady that sang the song over all I know and some of the physical pain that she's going through and to watch her sing that song that God is overall is just amazingly a great testimony. And so I say all that to say, how do you know God is compassionate? How do you know God that actually, because it feels like when you're going through pain that God leaves and exits. But how do you know that God rolls up his sleeves and moves towards you? Why? Because he says he's compassionate, but he shows it. One of the shortest verses in the Bible is John chapter 11. It says, Jesus wept. Okay, that's the one you always pick when you're like, hey, let's memorize a verse this week. Jesus wept, all right? But the whole context is the closest family that is with Jesus throughout the times. He'd go to their house for rest and relaxation. The brother dies. Jesus doesn't show up and he doesn't answer the prayer like they thought he should. It's like, show up and abracadabra and make him well. You've healed other people. You can hear our brother. You love him. Why don't you do something about it? He shows up late. And yet the whole story goes on. They're a little bit angry at him. And do you remember what he says? It actually talks about how it, it caused him anguish. And then it says, five minutes before he's going to raise him from the dead, Jesus wept. Now, class, why would Jesus weep if he knew that in five minutes, Lazarus is coming out of the grave? It's because he's empathetic. Because right now you're going through that right now. And he understands what that is like. God's a compassionate God. How do you know God's powerful? How can you sing this song about, you know what, if God wants to move this mountain, God can move this mountain. You know why? Because the Bible says he's powerful. Jesus shows he's powerful. Sits in a boat and the whole storm is breaking loose. I tried that prayer this morning. Didn't work, okay? I tried my office. Like, God, please split that storm because for every drop of rain, it takes three Baptists away. So please take away the storm. Please take away the storm. And I'm looking on the radar. I'm like, do it, God, do it, God. And it just got worse. I mean, that's the whole, it's like yellow turned to red, red turned to hail. The whole, I was like, okay, I'm not Jesus. But Jesus stood up and said, be still. And boom, everything commanded it. Why? Because he's powerful. All right, that's what that's that whole, you're like, that's in that one line? That's in that one line right there. And then he goes on, he's like the firstborn of all creation. Again, it's not that he was the born first of all creation. Listen to me. Many false theologies have made a whole system based on this one verse. And all it takes is a two-minute Google search on contextual criticism. And you realize that when it says he's the firstborn of all creation, that doesn't mean he was born first. Born first. It's not what he means. Firstborn in the Hebrew tradition could either mean that you were born first or you were the person of honor and value and inheritance, which obviously he means because the very next verse he says, he's the one that was the creative agent. If he created everything, he didn't create himself because he says, for by him all things were created, thrones, rulers, all of that. Now, what Paul is pointing out is that Jesus was the creative force of Genesis 1. Theologians say Colossians 1 and Genesis 1 sort of have the same rhythm. And the way that it says this and then this and this, it says they're like that. What I want to put on your plate this morning is, okay, if God created you, what does that actually say about you? Okay, let that sit there for a second. If God is the God, and because what I wanted to do, 
the preacher in me wanted to take all these statistics about the Milky Way and, you know, that three septillion stars in our universe and we can see 9,000. I was even tempted to use old, the old Louis Giglio's laminin deal and it's like, oh, all that stuff. But it's like, okay, instead of the global, let's go to the personal. What does it mean that God is the God, that Jesus is the God who actually was the creative force behind you? What does that mean? Number one, it has said something to do with worth. Now we touched on it last week, but there's a lot of different ways that people try to find worth these days. How many followers do I have on Instagram or Twitter? How many likes, how many mentions? How much money do I have? What is my career looking like? How smart am I? How many degrees on the wall do I have? How athletic am I? All these things. But here's what you've got to understand is first and foremost, your value is inherent in the fact that Jesus made you and then he paid for you. Now listen to it. He made you. I thought back to like, uh, I don't even know if we have that anymore, but when I was like in grade school in Tulsa or like junior high maybe, we had this shop we had to take called Shop. All right. I don't know if it's anybody. We still have that. Raise your hand if you had like shop or industrial. They're like four if you're like, I know not of what you speak. Well, here's what that basically, here's what shop was. It's like it was. And I'll, I'll give you hands down. I'm in the bottom 20% of people in this room who are what you call a hands-on, all right? Hands-on. Now, if you're a homeowner, you learn to be a little hands-on, but the biggest hand that I've got is calling a repairman to say, come fix this garage door. It's broke. I don't know what to do with it, okay? But when you make something, you have an, you have an attachment to it. So back in junior high at Thomas Alva Edison High School in the great state of Oklahoma, I made a, a little footstool, literally is a footstool. I mean, it took me like the whole semester, but I made a footstool, all right? You're like, well, how fancy was it? Not, it wasn't fancy at all. It was a footstool, which basically means you took about four pieces of wood, you sawed it and nailed it together and then wrote some calligraphy on the top and boom, presto changeo, you got a stool. Can I tell you that I had that stool I had that stool from the time I was in seventh grade at Edison High School till at least like four years after I was a married man. Somewhere in there, my godly wife figured out a way to kind of leave that behind one of those times we were moving. Where's my stool? Where's my stool? I don't know where that is, honey. I don't know where that, I'm still getting over it, counseling help, but I'm just saying there was, there was an attachment to something that I made that was unlike anything else. It's like, I made that. Multiply that times like a billion and think about the fact that not only did God make you, but not only did he make you, then you rebelled against him and then we were ungrateful and we had a bad attitude and we rebelled and sinned and tried to steal his glory and then he paid for our sin. I mean, think about what, this is why David could say and this is why we wanna make sure we're about life all the time. It's when David would say in Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. He's like, yeah, God takes a man and a, and, and a woman and makes a baby, but bottom line, God is sovereign over all that. And he's like, bottom line is I'm knitting you together. When you see those little fingers form, that's, a, that's an imprint that I'm making happen. And so David's like, who am I? Who am I? When I consider this, the stars, who am I that you would even think of me? And then we get to Colossians 1.20 and it says he made peace through the blood of Jesus. He creates us. We rebel against his authority with unbelief, ingratitude, and then he values us. He pursues us and he loves us even to the point of death. The loved ones here, I'm going to tell you this again at the end. But during the Lord's Supper here in a bit, 
There's going to be some video on the screen. Now, if you have a little child and you're the parent, you can cover his eyes. But, this, but the screen is going to be somewhat graphic. It's going to be a picture of the, when he's taking the cross. It's going to be a, a picture when he's on the cross for you. Please, 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 and let, please do not. The temptation you're going to have is to turn away. It's like, oh, it's too gory. That's too much. That's too graphic. That's too gory. That's disgusting. I don't want to see that. Please don't do that. I mean, we're, we're adults in here, okay? Please don't do that. What you want to do instead of looking away from it is lean into it. Because when you lean into it, what you understand is that's how much he valued me and loved me and he paid for me. But you got to think that was my sin that put him on the cross. So that when you get to the last stanza that talks about the stone is rolled away, you got something to celebrate. Because you can't celebrate an empty tomb unless you have been actually to the fact that there is Jesus dying for my sin. And so when you work through this one, it's got about it's your worth. It's also about the about what does God say in the Word. Can I be honest? Uh, when David says, "Your word, your commands were like honey in my mouth," commands that's not I have I don't get there that often. Your commands are like honey, and I ate them. But when you understand that the God who made you actually knows how you function best and how you flourish best, if Jesus is the author, if he's the creator of all things, then his commands are about us lining up with how he designed us to work. And so it's about us tapping into life, not him taking life from us. So when he says, this is how money works or parenting works or sex works or whatever, he's not trying to take from you, he's trying to give to you. He's not trying to crush us, he's trying to flourish us. I'm not saying it's easy, I would never say that. His commands are not easy, his commands are not easy. They're just for our flourishing. And say, well, like if he's big Jesus and he values me, what do I need to do? Well, here's what we know. Make it, make it about Jesus. Make what? Make it. What's it? Whatever you can think of, make it about Jesus. You're like, again, where is that in the text? Here's where it is in the text. Verse 16, verse 17, verse 18. Verse 16, it says, all things were created through him and for him or unto him. It's the idea of completed in him. Verse 17, before all things, means that's necessary for completeness of meaning. Verse 18, he does all this, why? So that in everything he might be preeminent. Now understand that there's different styles in the book here. In the style of the Apostle Paul, God did not take the personality away from the author when he wrote by the author exactly what he wanted to write down. The Apostle Paul is very systematic, very logical, very point A to point B, point B to point C, point C to point D, okay? You'll see that personality in here. That's not like, let's say, like Peter, if you read first or second Peter, it's just like, I'm gonna go to point A, and then I'm gonna go to point D, and then I'm gonna go to Z, and I'm gonna jump back to B. That's like Peter's personality. Paul's like, boom, 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 boom. Even a lot of law schools, like Harvard Law School, I believe was one of them, used to use the book of Romans, which is the most systematic of all of the books, used to use that as a picture of how do you argue a particular point. And so here's Paul's logic in this book and in this section. His logic is number one, Jesus is first. Jesus is first. By virtue of the fact that he is the creator, he is first. Second thing is Jesus went first. He went first, why? Because he pursued you he pursued you. He showed grace to you. He loved us first before we loved him. And so the third thing is that if Jesus is first and Jesus went first, then we should put Jesus first in our lives. That's what he means by, in all things, make them preeminent. So what does that mean? 
Like what? What part of my life? Now, there's probably 10 things we could pick. Let me give you four. First one is the biggest, kind of the 10,000-foot view, and then we'll kind of bring it down to a couple of very specific ones. First one is this, all right? Make them preeminent. Make them preeminent in this right here, in your purpose. That's kind of the big dog decision you got to make today. Now, your skill set might be accounting. Your skill set might be psychology. It might be painting. It might be athletics. It might be coaching. It might be homemaking. It might be business. It might be whatever. But big picture, if you're a Christ follower, your purpose is to know God and to bring him glory. Reflect back to him the glory that he deserves. Let's back up a little bit further. And again, we don't have time to totally unpack this, but we say this all the time. Your ultimate purpose, my ultimate purpose, my ultimate flourishing, my ultimate goodness is understanding, bottom line is, it's not about me. It's about God. That's the, because some people are like, as a matter of fact, I think it was Brad Pitt and Oprah Winfrey both said, this is the reason they can't believe in the God of the Bible, because they're like, the God of the Bible is all about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is all about the God of the Bible. He wants us to give him glory and brag on him, and they're like, I don't want a God who's got an ego problem. Well, another way you can kind of look at this is just ask this question. If God really is the source of all goodness, if he's the source of all life, how would it be loving for him to allow anything else, particularly us, to actually occupy the center? Do not all of us understand, have not all of us experienced putting other things in the center, listening to the promises that if you put this person, this thing, this hobby, this bit, if we put it in the center, that is when we will find satisfaction, only to find that bridge burned some months, weeks later. That's why, uh, like I need a few texts. Let me just give you a couple off the top of the head. Psalm 19, one says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Psalm 19, one. Ephesians chapter one, verse six, it says you were saved, what? To the praise of his glorious grace. The old uh, shepherd psalm, Psalm 23, verse three, that says, you know, he guides me in paths of righteousness. Guides me in paths of righteousness. See, it's about me. He guides me in paths of righteousness, comma. What does it say after that? For his name's sake. For his name's sake. Not so that you and I would look good, so that God would look good. But let me just say it again. We always are tempted to put stuff there in the center, and when we do, it messes up. I'll give you one. I had a bunch of different quotes. I'll give you the... uh, one that's kind of current with uh, the NBA finals going on because apparently the Toronto Raptors, they've got a super fan named Drake. All right, so Drake said this. He's a hip-hop star, great theologian. Just kidding. Um, here's what he said a couple years ago, and I thought, this is, a, this is a great picture. Here's what he said. He admitted this, thought it was pretty honest of him. He said, there was a point where I felt like I needed to keep the company of a different woman every night. I was trying to fill a void. But in those moments after sex, I'd know it wasn't working. Those quiet, listen to this, those quiet moments are the realest moments a man will ever have in his life. See what he's saying? It's like, I chased after this, I got that, I conquered this. Now I'm sitting there, my head's on my pillow, there's no music, there's no people, it's just me in that quietness. And he said, that's as real a moment as a man will ever get. And then he said, you know what? Despite of the futility, the next day I convinced myself to do it all over again. But he said, but during that time, during that time of reflection, during that time, I knew it wasn't working. Knew it wasn't working. So what do you want to decide today? What I need to decide, you got to do this almost daily. It's like, I don't want to be the center of the universe. I don't want to be the center of the universe. It breaks down when it's all about me. So here's what your prayer might be on this first one. God, would you glorify your name through me? 
If you're a student, God, would you glorify your name at T.C. Robertson or A.C. Reynolds or Owen High School? God, would you glorify your name through me? If you're an athlete, it's like, God, would you glorify your name whether I catch the touchdown pass or whether I drop the foul ball or whatever happens? Would you glorify your name through me? If you're a mother, would you be able to say, God, would you raise up not just good kids, but godly kids who bring glory to your name? If you're a business person, can you say, God, would you take my business and bring glory to your name by the way that I not only use my resources, but even by the way that I treat the people that work for me? That's just a decision. My purpose is to bring glory to you. My dating life, my financial life, my business life, that's your purpose. Okay, that's the long one. Let me give you these next three pretty quickly, so listen quick. The second one would be people. The second one would be people. If I understand it's not about me, if I understand it's not about me, Okay, what does the first commandment say? It's like, you know what? He said there's two things you gotta love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Just so you understand, there's gonna be like a six-week campaign we're doing in the middle of the fall. It's all about how do we love our neighbors? How do we love our neighbors? How do we tangibly love our neighbors in a real way? And so the question here is when it comes to people, you will see people differently when you understand that a God of grace has saved you. Here's a couple of things uh, just to ask yourself the question. Uh, The Bible says that be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do radical measures of mercy describe you? If somebody were to describe you, they're like, hey, tell me what Bruce is like. Tell me what Roger's like. Tell me what Susie's like. Would be the first even 10 descriptors, would any of them, let's just say, be mercy? Can I be honest? That would not be the case with me. Do not amen that, bro. That is such a bad place for an amen. All right, so what I'm saying is, I will have no mercy on you. All right, I have no mercy. Um, So here's the, that would probably not be, but here's what it is. God checks the sanctification box in different order for all of us. So when you see somebody and maybe their sanctification is not quite as sanctified as you, what you want to go back to, what you want to go back to, loved ones, is go back to, God has shown me great patience, and so I will be patient with other people. God has shown me amazing mercy, so I can show mercy to somebody else. If you're like a super harsh, judgmental, a culture's going to hell in a handbasket, and you're expecting lost people in particular to act like saved people, you need to go back to the patience and the grace that God showed you when he saves you, okay? It wasn't you getting your act together. It wasn't you pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. It was God Almighty pursuing you in spite of your rebellion and by his grace he called you to himself and you came to Christ in repentance and faith. You don't have a badge, you don't have any kind of award, you don't get some crown in your you don't get some jewel in your crown for what you did. And if you're if you're the guy that's like mercy, mercy, that's like the last thing I would ever mention of Bruce, then you got some you got some sanctification work to do. And part of it is going back to you know what? I'm merciful. Why? Because God's been merciful to me. Here's some other questions. Would you, would anybody say that you're generous? Now, we're not taking up an offering. I'm just saying, would anybody actually describe who actually knows your spending habits? Would anybody at all say, man, that's a generous person. They're generous with their time. They're generous with their service. They're generous with their finances. Would anybody describe that? Do you forgive quickly? Do you talk constantly about the grace you found in Jesus? Is there anybody when you leave this earth that is actually gonna be walking with Jesus and you are the main influence in their life? Just ask it again. Is there anybody based on the trajectory of your life right now that you say, you know what, that person is walking with Jesus, not because I was perfect, but I invested in that person. They're walking with Jesus. Why? Because I, because I was the main influence. Yes, God did it, but he uses people. If not, maybe you don't look at people right. And you're the third one. Pain. Let me say it again. There's probably 300 of you in here that are going through what, what anybody would define as severe pain. A secondary reason that Paul even wrote the letter 
The first one is like, you're Jesus, you're shrinking Jesus. But the secondary, you'll see kind of woven throughout the letter is, they're like, Paul, if you're so great and you're such a great preacher and you're working for God, how come you're in stinking jail? If you love God so much and you're all about this big Jesus who can like, when he rescued Peter, why isn't he rescuing you? And so he writes this letter to give them a good theology of suffering. And we won't go into that today, but just think about just verse 24, a couple verses up. He simply says this. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, Paul's not a sadist. Paul's not something like, oh, I love being in prison. The food is awesome. That's not it at all. It's not, he's not a sadist. He understands, though. Here's what he understands. At times, at time, God gets the most glory, not when he protects us from pain, but when we show people he can give us joy in himself when we are in pain. Let me say it again. Sometimes, not all the time, and I'm the first one at the front of the line saying, you know what, I want to pray that you would take this away from me. Seven years ago when we had that kind of surprise cancer deal that I had, I wanted you to pray for healing. I wanted you to pray for healing. And so if you're in pain, there's nothing wrong with you praying for healing. Nothing wrong with that. If your finances are in the toilet, there's nothing wrong with you saying, God, please provide, please provide some supply here. We got to have some supply. Nothing wrong with that at all. If your marriage is disintegrating, nothing wrong with you asking for that. Nothing wrong with you asking for that prodigal to come back. What we're saying is, though, if you, what Paul understood, and he's graduate level, he understood that there are times when if we can actually walk with trust and joy in the midst of hellacious circumstances here that actually bring God more glory than if he lets you win the lottery or when the husband comes back or when the prodigal comes home. And so if you're those 300 right now, what I'd ask you to do is just say, God, would you take... Would you take this pain? Would you take this financial, this emotional, this whatever pain? Would you take this pain and bring glory to yourself? Would you take this pain, let me to trust you and have joy in the midst of it so that your name would be lifted up? And do you understand one of the things is God does not walk out of the room when you, I, I, true confessions of the preacher, up until, man, I, I bet you wouldn't, and I still struggle with it, but I bet you up until five or six years ago, if I really got down to it, the way that I actually acted, I was, uh, I thought God was kind of like that teacher who, you know, they give you, they come in there and they come into the front of the class and they give you the assignment and then they walk out of the room. And then his students were like busy. I gotta, I gotta do the assignment. Cause you know, there's a day that the teacher's coming back and I want to make sure the assignment's done. And I'm working real hard on the assignment. I would say for the better part of definitely the majority of my Christian life, because there's some kind of emotional deal as a, I'm kind of scared of the emotion and the vulnerability and all that kind of stuff, to be honest. And so what I did was, is like, I'm going to work hard for God. I'm going to, and I still want to work hard for God. But what I thought was he was the teacher that had walked out of the classroom and just get to work. And I'm going to come back one day. That's the way I thought of him. It's like, he came, he gave me the assignment, I'm gonna work hard, and then he's gonna come back again. What I did not realize was that he doesn't just walk out of the room, he walks through these issues with me. And so again, I, I go back to that verse I mentioned earlier. Some of you are like, well, I don't think that's, that's just like a metaphor. That's just a whatever when it says God hides his tears in a bottle. You know what I found out? It's like at one point, a few years ago, a few years ago, we we're just weeping over, I was weeping over our prodigal. It's like, you know what? It doesn't matter if it's a stinking metaphor or not. What well, point is, I see the tears and I don't miss any of them. I hadn't lost any of them. They're not going to waste. I'm walking through this with you. What I'm asking you to do now is to trust me and to have joy in spite of the pain. And that's what he's asking you to do too.
And here's the way we can show it, and we'll end with this. Is uh, obviously all this stuff should not terminate on itself, but it ought, to, it ought to come back up into praise. A question before we do it. If somebody has seen the way that you worshiped earlier, listen to me, I love you, I love you, I love you. If somebody, to worship, if somebody had been sitting next to you, or let's say, a, let's say a Muslim had walked in here, been invited, what would that Muslim have thought of how big your Jesus is based on the way you worshiped earlier? If an atheist got invited to church and sat by you, and watch the way that you actually participated in overall I know or worthy. What would they have thought about how big your Jesus is? If your son or your daughter is sitting beside you right now, how big do they think your Jesus is based on the way that you gave him praise back a few minutes ago? The great news is we get a second chance. I mean, the great news is we're gonna have a second chance here in just a... Uh, in just a few minutes, but here's what I would say. I wrote down a couple of statements here, and let me say it again. When we understand the extravagant price that Jesus paid, you and I cannot regard stuff casually. You can't play church. That's why I say don't look away from the video. Lean into the video, and on the first part, understand that was my sin that put him on that cross. And we got to understand a real encounter with a living God, it changes everything. It magnifies the Lord, but it puts my ego, my sin, my burdens in their rightful place. It shows that he is not a life coach, he's not a safety net, he's not a divine butler. He is the God of infinite glory who pursued you, who brought you back, who brought the rebels back, brought the glory thieves back. And what we need to do is we need to be white hot worshipers. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. All right, uh, I say save up all that. He's like, I'm not sure if we're clapping now because you know we might get mad or what. I'm not. I'm not mad. Here's here's the idea. All right, here's the here's the way this is going to roll. We got like five six minutes left. All right, we front loaded the first part to give you a little more room at the back part. I mean, really, what do you want to do? You gonna go out in that monsoon? No, you don't. So here's here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Um, volunteers, you guys come forward. Uh, you men and ladies, you guys come forward. Here's what's going to happen. Um, they're gonna. You can use you can use a lot of different parts of you. You know, in the Bible, you see raise your hands, you see uh, um, hit your knees, you see raise your voice, you see a lot of different postures. So I don't want to dictate how you want to worship the next five or six minutes. All I, all I would say is worship intentionally, worship fervently, worship passionately.